Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And here we are, Nikki. We're jumping off a cliff. <laughs> sure feels like that. <laughs> well, we are starting to go through the book of Daniel. And before you all fall over with your eyes glazed, <laughs> let's talk about why we're doing it. So, Nikki, when you think about our doing Daniel, why? what comes to your mind first? Well, honestly, the first thing I think of is we're taking back Daniel. I we're like taking that. it back because it was so misused in our previous life as Adventists. And you know, I didn't even know how much Daniel had to do with their investigative judgment. I, yeah. I, I personally was never taught well because I was in and out of the system. But I didn't ever want to study it because I knew that when you got into some of the visiony stuff, uh-huh. that it was just too much for me. Greater minds than mine understood. And so I'll just take them for, you know, at right. their word. And I just walked circles around it, unless we're talking about Daniel and the lion's den. Of you course. know, everybody knows about that. Dare to be a Daniel. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Eat your veggies. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of had the book separated in my head, the kids' stories and then the Adventist stuff. Right. And didn't spend a lot of time with it. But when we went through Daniel at Trinity Church years ago through the women's ministry program, and Mm -hmm. then when Pastor Gary came and taught us from Daniel at the former Adventist Fellowship Conference. Yeah, 2016, if anybody's interested to look it up online. And even if you're hesitant, do it anyway. I agree. It's amazing. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. And not because we get into the exotic, as he describes it. It's because he makes, he roots it in history and makes it say what it says. He doesn't go beyond that. (laughs) Who knew that we didn't know what it said? Yeah. we, We were supposed to know the most. Yeah. So when I think about us doing this now, I'm actually really excited and terrified because I don't feel equipped to teach Daniel or to participate in teaching Daniel. But I'm excited for the people who don't know what they're going to get. Yes. Because it really is good. It really really is good. It is. And I'm so impressed with the fact that I never understood, like you, Daniel, and I remember the summer between my junior and senior years at Walla Walla College, I had one religion class left to take, and I took it during summer school. And I had saved Daniel and the Revelation for my last class. You know, I had to have a certain number of religion requirements, and that was one of the things I had to take. So I took it during the summer because the summer session was taught by the chairman of the department, of the Bible department then. It was Gordon Balharry. He had kind of a name in Adventism back then. And I thought, wow, you know what? If anybody can explain this to me, it'll be him. (laughs) I had a little experience with him outside of the classroom. I had been a girls club officer and he'd been on a film review committee and he'd had some very uh, surprisingly witty and insightful comments when we talked about things behind the scenes. And so I kind of was impressed with the man and I was looking forward to hearing this subject taught by him because I never understood it. And you know, Daniel and the Revelation is like code for all things Adventist regarding the investigative judgment. AKA how to be saved. (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. So I was hoping to figure out how to get saved. And of course, I also remembered 
in junior high, I believe seventh grade, I had to do the timeline charts. Mm. I learned and memorized those crazy charts, including the supposed year that Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and then all the succeeding charts and years and this and that and when the sanctuary was beginning to be cleansed in 1844. And of course, I can't repeat any of that and it never completely made sense to me, even though I had to memorize it. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get this all figured out, right? So it was my only class that summer, and I went with high hopes. I took the syllabus in with me. I had my Bible, and I was surprised that it was not interesting. I found the class boring. I had trouble staying awake, and this was an interesting man, but he couldn't make that class interesting. And you know what really shook me? And it wasn't until years later that I sort of understood why he did this. He didn't finish the syllabus. He did not finish the curriculum for that class. We ended well before the end of his notes for the class. And he gave us credit for having taken the class, but he never finished teaching it. Wow. And I think now, looking back, that that man knew that he couldn't actually honestly teach Daniel and Revelation and the investigative judgment, and Ellen White, and have it harmonize. You can't do it. Even though our entire background in Adventism was based supposedly on those books, but, you know, it really wasn't. It was really based on those Adventist visions. Yeah. And they just picked and chose from these books. So, that was many decades ago now. And I think about sitting here with you, with these (laughs) microphones between us, and we're going to read our way through Daniel, and I just want to (laughs) laugh. You know what? One of the most freeing things for me, being a believer now, this side of Adventism, is knowing that I don't have to have all the answers. I can read the words of Scripture. I can stick with the hermeneutical rules of how you read the Bible, and what I don't understand Sure, I can ask someone else who might know the languages or be better studied, but if they don't know, it's okay. It's okay if we don't always know. And that has been such a relief. Totally free. So you will hear a lot of, I don't know from me as we go through Daniel, I (laughs) promise. (laughs) So don't worry. Now, why are we doing this with a former Adventist podcast? Well... I would say the time seems to be right Mm -hmm. because we've just come through the two COVID years Mm -hmm. and we're sort of regaining our footing in a sort of destabilized world, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Nobody's completely sure what's coming next or where to put our feet so that the ground doesn't shake. At least that's how it feels. Yeah. Politically, it feels very out of control. But you know what? Daniel tells us that God is in control. Yes. We've had a lot of questions, you know, Adventists everywhere. I see online so much flurry with this whole situation with COVID and the disruption of normal life. Haven't you heard just tons of, oh, the Sunday laws coming? Have you heard what the Pope has done? It's just everywhere. People saying, oh, it's coming now for sure. And we with an Adventist background, that's the first go-to. I mean, I have just had a series of emails from somebody who still was arguing with me that the Pope has to be the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast has to be Sunday worship. And uh, what did I think? Well, I don't think I know for sure who the Antichrist will be because he hasn't shown up yet. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I know for sure 
what the mark of the beast will be. Although we have some characteristics of it, it surely doesn't resemble a day. So, we've decided we're going to take our fear by the horns, so to speak. We're going to look at Daniel and say, God gave us this book to reveal himself. He didn't give us this book to give us special knowledge that nobody else can figure out. He gave us a book to reveal himself, and we're just going to walk through it using our hermeneutic, like you said. And I want to stress this. I was recently reading a book about prophecy, which is you know, you have to read everything with an eye to what does Scripture say. Mm-hmm. But they had a really interesting distinction in hermeneutical principles. They said some really good Christians who take the Bible very seriously will use the historical grammatical method of interpretation all through the Bible until they come to prophecy. And when they come to prophecy, they stop using that technique and they start allegorizing or spiritualizing. Yeah. And we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. We're going to just look at the words and see what it would have meant to the first audience if we can figure it out. And if we can't, we're going to say so. You know, in preparation for today's episode, we both listened to Gary preach at the conference in the introduction to his series through Daniel. And I was struck by what he said as he closed his introduction to the series. He closed with a prayer. And I wrote it down because I believe it reflects our heart going into the book of Daniel. It's kind of our prayer for us right now. It is. He said, Father, help us to fill our mind with great thoughts of you. Keep us from being caught up in the minutia and the exotic in the way people have looked at this book and help us to keep focused on the great truth that you and you alone are Lord and God and you only do we need to fear. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. And that's our prayer for us all as we look at this book. And the fact is, we all know that that famous text, Daniel 8, 14, was twisted by the Adventists out of context and owned as the biblical evidence to support the investigative judgment. It doesn't support it, of course. But they had to use the King James Version, really, to get the best support. That alone should be a major red flag. Mm -hmm. But that fact alone twisted everything they read from Daniel, both before and after. So it's like there's Daniel 8.14, and the way they decided to interpret Daniel 8.14 affected how they read Daniel 1 through 7 and Daniel 9 through 12. It all has to fit And we're not going to do that. No. And like you said, we're going to take back the book of Daniel because God gave it to us. One thing I remember about Daniel when we went through it in women's Bible study, like you referred to earlier, Mm -hmm. was our friend Cheryl, Yeah, who was very triggered by the book of Daniel. She had gone through Adventist schools. She had learned all the Adventist doctrines. She had learned all the proof texts, and she had understood that Daniel was the key, supposedly, to understanding Adventist doctrine. And when she came to that book in women's Bible study, she admitted to us one evening that she had started copying Daniel as we were studying it into a notebook. And we all looked at her and she (laughs) said, I have found it to be strangely calming. Yeah, And that's how I see Daniel now. I just don't want us to forget that that is the point of God's Word. Yeah. He doesn't trick us, he reveals himself, and he blesses us for reading his word. So, why don't we talk 
about how the book of Daniel came to be. There's history and context for understanding why Daniel would be in Babylon and why he would be writing. And for me, this history was something else I hadn't really learned in Adventism. No, the Bible was here a little, there a little for us. <laughs> yes. So, uh, the concept of of flying over the Bible and getting the the big picture of how everything fits together and the history and all of that, that was brand new to me when I went to Trinity. Me too. I didn't even know people did that. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. So, the background is this. It really started way back when God gave the Mosaic Covenant to Israel. And you know, that alone was something we didn't understand as Adventists. We didn't understand that the Mosaic Covenant was just for Israel and that it held the terms for everything that happened in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel and beyond. One of the things that helped me begin to understand what led up to Daniel (laughs) was understanding that the nation was split after King Solomon. Now, I'd heard of that, but I've talked to former Adventists who never knew the nation was split. So, Nikki, help me think through what we've learned about the split nation. We know that there were the days of the judges. Israel was in the land, but they didn't have a king yet. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But then we come to the fact that there was finally a monarchy. And Remember, it was poor old Samuel, the last of the judges, but the first of the Israelite prophets who anointed the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel. The first king of Israel, let's talk about who he was. It was Saul. Yeah. Now, you know, what's interesting is that just before Jacob died and he blessed all of his 12 sons, He actually said that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. It was a messianic prophecy about a king that was going to come from the tribe of Judah. But Saul, the one that God told Samuel to anoint first, was not from Judah, which if anybody had been thinking about those prophetic moments, they might have sensed that there was something about this. But Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Samuel anointed Saul, and Saul, here's one of the ways that I have started to understand, and I got this from Elizabeth teaching her walk through the Old Testament. Um, Saul was a king who had no heart for God. Now, that's a really interesting way to remember him. He was the first king of Israel, but he ended up being completely apostate. Mm. Remember the witch of Endor Mm -hmm. and all of that? He was completely apostate, and he led Israel into great sin. He was personally not observant of the law. As he aged, he got worse and worse. And he died, apparently a lost man. And he had no heart for God, but he did reign over Israel for 40 years. It was the beginning of the monarchy. But before he died, God asked Samuel to go and anoint the next king of Israel before he would actually have to take the throne. He set him apart, even while Saul was still on the throne. And who was that? That was David. Yes, that was David, the youngest son of his father, Jesse. And David was just a kid when Samuel anointed him. What was his job? Well, he was a shepherd, and it didn't even occur to his dad to bring him in when Samuel came to anoint a a king. king. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, David was the second king of Israel, and he also reigned for 40 years. Now, Nikki, these things are so, like, 
well-known in the Christian community. It's so interesting to me that we Adventists who thought we knew the Old Testament, had you ever known that the kings each served 40 years? No, I didn't know that. And in fact, I remember going through some of these walk through the Old Testament classes that Elizabeth taught. And it was so interesting to me as she would teach, she would ask a question or she'd begin a verse and the room would answer it or quote the verse. And I'm like, whoa, we thought we knew the Bible. Right. Because we saw that fourth commandment there in the list of the 10 (laughs) and they didn't. Right. But they know the word of God. They had some sense of biblical history. So David, we can remember him as the king who had a whole heart for God. David loved the Lord, and the thing that marked David apart from all other kings of Israel or Judah was that he would repent when he sinned. He is the one who said, against you, O Lord, and against you only have I sinned. Even in his sin against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah the Hittite, whom he had murdered in battle, he recognized that his sin was against God, and he repented. So, Saul, no heart for God, 40 years David, 40 years, but a whole heart for God. And then the third king of the joined monarchy was whom? Solomon. And whose son was Solomon? He was David's son, and he had half a heart for God. He did. And you know what's so interesting to me? And I had never realized this either as an Adventist, that Solomon was the second son born to Bathsheba and David. Now, the first one was the result of the illegal tryst, Mm -hmm. and that baby died. But then Bathsheba brought forth Solomon, and I find it so fascinating that God told David Solomon was to take the throne, and Solomon was the son of the woman that he had had that illegal tryst with and made his wife. But in their repentance, God redeemed it, Mm -hmm. and he blessed them, and he gave them the son that would take the throne. So, Solomon, as you said, had half a heart for God. He started out well, but he ended up marrying hundreds of foreign brides and had concubines, and he brought idolatry in, which is a really sad thing. And it was so severe that at the end of Solomon's life, here came the part of the history of Israel that we didn't really learn. The kingdom was divided. It was divided into two parts. The 10 tribes in the northern kingdom, which became known as the nation of Israel, and two tribes that became known as the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. The two tribes in the southern kingdom were Benjamin and Judah. But the thing that was so significant about that southern kingdom was that was where Jerusalem was. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and if you think forward to the Samaritans and the woman at the well, the half-breeds who were part Israelite and part Canaanite, and Israelites were not supposed to interact with them, that was the result of these northern tribes being separated from the southern, and then eventually they would be exiled. So, we have the divided kingdom. Now, what did you know about the divided kingdom? As an Adventist? Yes. And what did you learn? Well, one of the things that was interesting to me and actually made me think a little bit about my time in Adventism was the fact that the Northern Kingdom had set up their own 
holy place. Yeah. They called it Bethel and they had altars and they would sacrifice and they believed they were worshiping Yahweh, but they were doing it on their own terms with a, a lifestyle that was convenient for them up there in the north. Yeah. Rather than traveling down to Jerusalem where God told them to worship. So they were disobeying him, but they were moralizing it. And that first king of the northern kingdom. And by the way, this wasn't just the work of men. God had said he would divide the kingdom if Solomon and his son didn't repent and get it together. And he did. So, God appointed this division, but that first king, Jeroboam, who had actually been a servant of Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the first king of the southern kingdom. That first king in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, didn't just set up holy places. He brought in golden calves. Mm -hmm. And he still called it Yahweh worship because he said, oh no, we're worshiping an invisible God. These calves just represent our powerful God. It was an idol from the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. And God judged them for that. The Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom coexisted as two nations who were sometimes opposed to each other and would sometimes collaborate politically, but they actually were two different nations and they existed for a couple hundred years or so. Now, one of the things that I didn't know as an Adventist was that the Southern Kingdom of Judah was more stable than the Northern Kingdom. Its kings tended to sit on the throne longer. The average northern king lasted about 12 years. The average king of Judah lasted about twice that long. Also, the northern kingdom, which like right off the bat got the golden calves, they never had a godly king. In all of their years of existence, they had no good king. But the southern kingdom actually had about eight kings who did serve God. Now, the balance, about 20 more, were wicked. But they did have eight kings who did some reforms, who served God, who tried to tear down a lot of the altars to Baal. And God blessed them for that. So that nation was more stable, and it lasted a little bit longer. But even at that, they still ultimately went into idolatry. The thing I didn't really understand well as an Adventist, was that this business of being exiled as they went into apostasy was something Moses had told the children of Israel would happen eventually. It was part of the Mosaic covenant. God had promised blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, and Moses even told them in Deuteronomy just before his death, before that generation of the wilderness people went into the land, he told them, the day is coming when you're going to be exiled. Yeah, that happened in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And beginning in verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. What I love about Moses' response is when he goes to Israel and he speaks to them as he's about to die, he 
speaks to them with a hundred percent conviction that everything God told him is going to come to pass. He says in verse 29, same chapter, for I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. This is such a picture of believing God's words and acting on God's words. And these people will have the words of Moses in their mind as they see all of this unfold through history, which is a mercy. It is a mercy. They know what's happening to them. And isn't it interesting in that first section you read, Deuteronomy 31, 16 to 18, God specifically says, they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. And that is the ultimate end of what causes these nations to be split and ultimately exiled. They have not obeyed and kept up the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And this isn't all God left them with. He sent them prophets. Over and over, warning them, calling them to repent for hundreds of years. And it's interesting that they persisted not only in going back to idolatry, but going deeper and deeper into it. It was just a few years ago that I realized in reading through the Old Testament with Richard, as we have been doing, we've been reading through the Bible successively for several years. I mean, we end and start again and end and start again. And I hadn't realized for so long that Israelites actually sacrificed their children to Moloch. They actually went into child sacrifice. God could not tolerate their persistent spiral into sin any longer, even though he kept calling them to repent, but they refused. One of the other things that they did that broke the covenant that actually affected this exile was that in the Mosaic Covenant, in the laws of Sabbath, there were laws for jubilee years. Every seven years, they were supposed to let the fields lie fallow, not plant them, and they were to give the land a Sabbath rest. Never once did Israel practice that. That was a clear command. So, by the time the exile happened, they had accumulated 70 non-kept Sabbath years for the land. That was a lot of years that had gone by without them ever practicing it. And we learn in Second Chronicles 36, 20-21, that that was part of what affected the length of the Babylonian captivity. And this is what the chronicler says. He, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So, not only was this exile about the Israelites themselves falling into deep apostasy and worshiping foreign gods, demonic gods, it was also about bringing about His command that the land itself would rest. That's the background, in a nutshell, that led up to the fact that Israel and Judah would be exiled. Now, Because the northern kingdom was less stable and more wicked than the southern, it met its end earlier 
than Judah did. So in 722 BC, the nation of Assyria, which was the dominant empire in the world at that time, swooped into the northern kingdom, took those Israelites captive and led them out of the land, led them back into Assyria. And from that day forward, they never came back to the land. They were exiled, they were assimilated into the nations, and their offspring became the Samaritans that we read about in the New Testament that the Israelites were not allowed to associate with. They were half-breeds between Canaanites and Jews, and they had a syncretistic religion that incorporated some Canaanite beliefs and a few Old Testament mosaic beliefs. But they were never brought back to the land. So those 10 northern tribes were never actually heard from again as complete tribes. Even when Jesus was here on earth, the nation of Judah reassembled after its exile, but the northern kingdom never did. Now, you know, Nikki, did you know that as an Adventist? No, I didn't. I didn't know any of this stuff. I think I dismissed a lot of the Old Testament, me personally. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought about what happened to the Northern Kingdom. Yeah. It kind of didn't matter to me because Israel was done anyway, right? They right. crucified Jesus and now we were going to take it from here. It's <laughs> sort of how I thought well, about it. that's how I thought of it too. I think we were taught to think of it that way. So in Gary's talk, he mentioned that those who were faithful migrated south even though Judah persisted in its idolatry, who were they? Well, there were obviously people who loved the Lord and who were faithful to Him in spite of the bad leadership. We don't know who they were specifically, but there were Israelites who did keep the faith of Yahweh, and they migrated south. Meanwhile, Judah persisted as a nation for about 134 more years. The northern kingdom went into exile in 722, but then... Assyria started losing power to a rising political power called Babylon. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what happened when Babylon started gaining power and marching into the lands that Assyria had conquered? How did that affect Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah? So that was Babylon, and Babylon began to emerge as a major power, and under Nebuchadnezzar's father... Mm-hmm. And his father was a powerful leader, and he led the growth of Babylon, mm-hmm. with Nebuchadnezzar leading the armies for his father. So, Judah was the first area of opposition for their move on Egypt. They wanted to go and take Egypt down, and Judah was in their way, basically. Yeah. And Judah had made alliances with Egypt, and so they kind of belonged to Egypt in a way, and they, they took him down on their path to Egypt. But while they were doing this... Nebuchadnezzar learned that his father had died. And what year was this? This was in 605 BC. And that's important because it turns out that there are going to be three invasions of Judah by Babylon. Now, I did not know that as an Adventist, and I find it really quite fascinating. And if we understand these three waves of Babylonian invasion, we understand how Judah was so thoroughly wiped out. So this first one that you're talking about, when Nebuchadnezzar came down on his way to Egypt, but Judah's in the way, and he learns that his father dies, that's 605 BC. So instead of finishing his task in Judah, he just takes some of the important people there, some of the finest young people, and Daniel was a part of that, and he took vessels from the temple, and didn't he take their king? He took their king, too. Mm -hmm. So he brought them back to Babylon, His plan was to train and Babylonize them and turn them into his representatives. 
It's also interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, when he went back, when his father died, he made sure he took the throne. He became the king of Babylon, the emperor of Babylon, and he reigned from this date, 605 BC, until 552. So he had a long and fruitful reign, and under his leadership, Babylon became the most powerful nation in the world. And it was considered very beautiful too, wasn't it? It had the hanging gardens. Which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That was all under Nebuchadnezzar. And that year, 605, is when Daniel and his three friends were taken with several thousand others and marched, literally marched, from the nation of Judah into the nation of Babylon, where they would become subjects to the Babylonian Empire. And this is all a part of God's sovereign plan and work in human history. And what's so fascinating about that to me is when they stripped the temple and they they took the people back to Babylon in the pagan world, in the world of unbelievers, that was a sign that their God was more powerful than the God of Israel. Yeah. And God allowed for that, for he His did. purposes. Yes, he allowed it to look like the Babylonian gods prevailed over the God of Israel. So after 605, the next invasion came in 597. Nebuchadnezzar came back. He attacked Jerusalem again. And then finally, in 587, he came back and finished the job. He burned the temple, destroyed all of the city of Jerusalem, all the people were taken except for a few that had escaped to Egypt and a few others that were left in the land just to sort of make sure that it wasn't inhabited by wild animals. It was a complete satellite of the nation of Babylon, and there was no nation of Judah left by 586 BC. Now, we go through this because all of this is what led up to the book of Daniel. And it wasn't an easy thing to destroy Judah. It took three invasions, but God allowed it to be completely destroyed. And think about it. By the time they burned the temple and destroyed it, all of these people that had gone into Babylon from Judah, they were God's people. They were Israelites, but they had no temple. And without a temple, they had no formal worship. They couldn't offer sacrifices without a temple. How were they going to worship their God? And, you know, today there's a lot of Christians who would think, you know, what would we do without an ability, with, with everything being illegal? You know, these people were being Babylonized. There was no existence of Israel, except these people were God's people in their hearts still. One of the things that Gary pointed out in his talk was that verse in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, the beginning of 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. So we see again God's sovereignty. This was his plan. He gave them to Babylon. He turned over his people and his vessels. And one of the things that Gary said that I really love, he said one phrase that expresses the book of Daniel is, despite appearances, God is sovereign. And that's something we can take to the bank today too. Absolutely. I think that's why Daniel seems like such an appropriate book for us to study now, taking it back from the misrepresentation we were taught. Because if there is any book in the Bible that tells us 
even though we can't see the future and even though everything looks unstable, God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. He's on his throne and he has us. And he's doing what he said he'd do. Absolutely. Well, the book of Daniel is structured in several different ways, but the way we're going to look at it and the way that maybe makes the most sense for us because of the way we've been taught is we can divide it in two. It has only 12 chapters. The first six chapters are stories and the last six chapters are visions. Chapters 1 to 6, we read about Daniel's life and times in the nation of Babylon. And chapters 7 to 12, we read about God's purposes in history. But there's an unseen structure that I had no clue existed as an Adventist. Nikki, would you talk to us about the language issue? Yeah, those two parts are written in different languages. We have Hebrew and we have Aramaic. Aramaic was, as we know, a Gentile language. It was the trade language of the ancient world. It was spoken throughout the land, and it was similar to Hebrew, but it was an international language. Even in Jesus's time, people spoke in Aramaic. Now, the interesting thing about this division between Hebrew and Aramaic in the book of Daniel is how it's divided. The first chapter through chapter 2, verse 3, is written in Hebrew. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, clear through the end of chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And then chapters 8 through 12 are Hebrew again. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Hebrew sections correlate to the stories and prophecies of the Hebrews of the nation of Israel. The Aramaic sections correlate to the stories and prophecies concerning the Gentile world. Now, Nikki, had you ever seen Daniel that way? No, we didn't talk about languages. We never concerned ourselves with the fact that Daniel had two different audiences. Isn't that fascinating? And when you think about it, think about God taking Daniel into the nation of Babylon and giving him a Gentile audience that needed his revelations from God. God wasn't just serving the nation of Israel. He was also informing the Gentiles so that even today we could look at this book and have a general sense of the history of the world and how it would all end. So he gave the book to Daniel in two languages, so that the parts about the nation of Israel would be easy to read by all the Hebrews. And he gave the parts about the Gentile world in Aramaic, so that the Gentiles could easily read about their own future. The fact that God would concern himself with informing Gentiles about anything goes to show that the Gentiles were always a part of his eternal plan. Another interesting thing is that Daniel is one of only three books in the Old Testament written outside the promised land. And those three were Daniel, Esther, and Ezekiel. The question then is, what is God doing? And how does all this fit with God's promises to Abraham about the inheritance of the land and the offspring he would have? So then we come to another way of looking at the book of Daniel. And that is to look at the basic themes. And we've already mentioned the sovereignty of God. So, Nikki, can you say a little bit to us about what we learn about the sovereignty of God in terms of what we learn in the book of Daniel? 
Well, it's God who carries out his purposes, despite how we see them as they play out, however we may interpret them or whatever it may look like to the world. God is in control of all things, and there's a purpose and a plan for all of it. One of the passages that just jumped out of the book for me the first time I went through it as a Christian came from chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. Daniel was speaking of God, and he was praying. And he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. This was after he was able to interpret the dream that the king had commanded them to be able to interpret. And so we see that Daniel, who's been taken from his land and put in this impossible situation, is still faithful and praising God and praying to him and trusting his sovereignty. And I have to say, the verse that talks about him changing times and seasons shocked me as a former Adventist because I was told that's what the Antichrist did. Now, I know that there are passages that talk about him seeking to change these things, but it says seeking to change. Yes. I was taught that he would change. He would change the Sabbath to Sunday. I was too. It was a slight twist, but it was a proof text for them. And when I read this, and I read that it is God alone who sets up times and who changes times and who sets up kings and kingdoms, it was such a powerful display of God's sovereignty and expose on the deception of Adventism and their proof texts. And isn't that an amazing prayer that you just read for today in post-COVID? Yes. Watching a world rocking and reeling and not knowing where things will land. God knows it's already determined. Even COVID didn't surprise him. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that was hard for me at first to accept, and this is all a part of God's sovereignty, are the judicial purposes of God. And this was something we didn't like as Adventists. Oh, there's no hell. Oh, God has no wrath. Oh, God doesn't abuse his children. That was kind of the, you know, the mantras that we would speak of to try to make sure we were holding him up to, to a watching universe. But this was the judicial purpose of God for them to go into exile. And the rest of the book is going to be about Gentile powers and their dominance for much of history over God's chosen people. And it will show God's judicial purposes in all of that. And you know, if you want a sovereign God, you got to accept all of it. You do. And it's interesting, one of the points that Gary made in his teaching in that first talk he gave on the book of Daniel in his overview, he said, the God of Daniel is not a God of openness. No. (laughs) He's not the openness of God God that Mm -mm. so much of Adventism teaches. This is a God who is the God of heaven and earth, and we don't always understand, but we know that things will happen as he said they will happen in his time, and nothing is a surprise to him. He has no plan B. No, he never did. He he also pointed out Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I want to tell everybody, sit up when it says until. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> there's always something very interesting there. But We are living in the times of the Gentiles presently. Just as God showed 
Daniel in Babylon. Mm -hmm. We are in that time. God will allow judgment to come upon Israel as it did when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, as it did when the Babylonians took the nation of Judah. God allows judgment to come upon Israel. As Paul says in Romans 11, there is also a hardening purpose for the nation of Israel for a time. But at the end of the time of the Gentiles, God will turn again toward his people. He will keep his promises, just as he made them to Abraham, just as he renewed them again through Paul. His gifts and his promises are sure, and his promises to the church are equally sure. And if he doesn't keep his promises to Israel, how can we believe he will keep his promises to the church? His promises cannot fail, no matter who they're to or what they are. Yeah, I want to tag on to that. In Romans 11, Paul tells us not to become arrogant against Israel. And one of the other themes that Gary spoke about in this book is that God resists the proud and he lifts up the humble. That's definitely a theme in the book of Daniel. I remember the first time I heard the story of Nebuchadnezzar being sent out to pasture. (laughs) Literally. It was surprising to me. I didn't remember that story in Adventism, but we see God's hand. You know, that verse that says that the king's heart is like water in the hand of God. It's true. It is. So, in a nutshell, the book of Daniel came about during the 70 years of Judah's exile into Babylon. Daniel was taken, and we'll look more at that as we read the stories about Daniel, but he was taken from Judah, one of the best and the brightest, and he was taken into a pagan land where he was Babylonized. He was trained in all the history, literature, and religion of Babylon, and likely, historically, it seems certain, he was also made a eunuch, which was actually considered in the Mosaic Covenant to be something that would prohibit him from ever worshiping in the temple. But God placed him in a place where the temple was gone, where all the trappings of the God of Israel had been relegated to the foreign gods, the vessels had been put in the foreign god's temple. And Daniel remains true to God. And that is the overarching story of Daniel. But we see as time goes on that because Daniel is there, because he receives these revelations from God and is faithful to tell them, and is faithful to live out his faith in God, this is likely the reason when Jesus was born, there were magi from the East who even knew he was coming. Daniel and his legacy as a Jew, as a Hebrew who loved God, who honored him, who received his prophecies, and who kept the memory of his law alive, left this legacy in the pagan nation of Babylon, which was then received by the Persians and so on. So that by the time Jesus came, even those people in the East knew a Messiah was coming. This is a sovereign God. I love one of the things that Gary said during his talk. He said, even if you can chart out all of the prophecies that have disputings in the vision part of the book, if you don't come out of the book with a bigger vision of God, my great concern isn't whether so-and-so is the Antichrist. It is the exalted person of the Son of Man who is God's designated owner of all things, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. 
in all of Daniel's faithfulness, it seems to me that his greatest message to communicate to the world would be about God, not about his faithfulness, the sovereignty of God and God at work in the world, the fact that they could trust him. He he lifted him up and elevated him to kings at the risk of death. And he went into the lion's den at the risk mm-hmm. of death to always lift up and elevate and honor and worship this holy God. And so, honestly, while I was an Adventist, I looked at Daniel to see what I was supposed to be like in terms of how I ate and not being scared. Right. But really, it's about how Daniel's heart for God filled his life and his lifestyle. He elevated our Father. And our prayer as we go through this book together is that each of us will see that we serve a God we can utterly trust. He will never leave us, even if He walks with us into scary times, into things we can't see our way out of. God knows the end from the beginning. And you know what? What we have now in the new covenant when we trust Jesus is we have spiritual life and the Holy Spirit never leaves us. And even if we end up dying, we know where we will be. We will be instantly with our Lord. That's an absolute assurance that the Bible gives us. And that is the kind of assurance we get from the book of Daniel. God saw this coming. He is not surprised. And we pray that Each of you who hears this will end up knowing the certainty that our Lord Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day, according to Scripture, and that every one of us will trust Him and know the assurance of having His peace and comfort and confidence as we face a world that we can't explain, but a future that we know for certain. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about us going into the book of Daniel, we want to hear from you. We know that this isn't an easy step to take, but we hope you'll hang in there with us. Just try it. (laughs) God's word will never fail you. You will never walk away disappointed when you believe the words on the page and you know them in their context. You will be blessed. So please join us next week as we begin with chapter one of Daniel. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Proclamation Magazine.